This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Deborah Yao, a senior editor at Knowledge at Wharton, the online management journal of the Wharton School. I'm here today with Andrea Contigiani to talk about his latest research into startups and experimentation. Companies like to do market experimentation because then they can incorporate customer feedback into their products to make them better. We hear about beta versions of software, for example, being released by companies like Microsoft or Google. But there is a trade-off. Companies learn from experimenting by releasing an early version of their products to consumers and getting their feedback, but they also risk a competitor copying their product. Andrea's research looks into this issue. His research paper is titled, Experimentation, Learning, and Appropriability in Early Stage Ventures. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you very much. Why did you choose this particular topic? So I, uh, I was, I've been always interested in, in questions around innovation. And so uh, when I was choosing a topic for my dissertation, I wanted to find something that would be really uh, sort of impactful, that practitioners and industry people would care about. So what I did, I, I went out and tried to interview as many people as I could, both in the, you know, big Wharton alumni community and also in the Philadelphia uh, sort of startup scene. And I tried to get a sense of what people doing startups um, cared mo- most about. And and it was really clear that many, many people uh, or most people cared uh, a lot about uh, lean startup. Uh, things like experimenting, uh, your minimum viable product, uh, pivoting. These were some of the things that really came up most. And I obviously was very familiar with um, with Lean, but I wasn't—I I don't think I was fully aware of the impact that it ha- had uh, on business and entrepreneurship. And I mean, I think Lean has really been a, a little bit of a revolution. Uh, the U.S. government is even uh, asking the companies they fund to use the the Lean startup methodology through through a program called iCore. Uh, I mean, Lean. The, the keywords of lean have really become part of uh, of the business language in all sectors, not just in startups. And so this has really been a, an important change. And so I wanted to, to look into this topic uh, with data. Great. And so just to back up a little bit, you mentioned lean startup. Can you explain real briefly what that is for our listeners? Absolutely. So, so the lean startup is really, at this point, a... Uh, not just a set of tools. It's more of a, in my view, a way to do business. And in particular, it applies to early stage companies. But in reality, it applies to everyone doing innovation, including large firms, possibly including nonprofits, even governments. The core of the Lean Startup is is, uh, essentially experimentation rather than trying to understand the details of your your business, of your product, before executing, the idea is to to try to uh, have an idea of your business and then get market feedback as soon as possible. And that's really what uh, we call experimentation. There are some specific practical tools that the Lean Startup suggests. In my view, primarily uh, minimum viable product uh, and pivoting. These are really the, the two big innovations in, in there. And in general, you know, this really helps uh, companies uh, 
innovate more effectively. It, we, I think it's really important to, to mention that now we all use this terminology. There's a lot of authors, researchers, practitioners uh, talking about it. Much of the Lean Startup really comes from the, the, the amazing work that Steve Blank and Eric Ries have done over the past uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, and I attended the Lean Startup Conference uh, in t- last year, 2017, in San Francisco, where Eric presented his uh, latest book, The Startup Way. And this has been really, really interesting because from the, the kind of the big change from his previous book, uh, 2011, the, the Lean Startup, maybe the classic of this uh, uh, line of thought, is that now the Startup Way tries to really teach how to do lean innovation to all kinds of firms, not just startups. And it's been, uh, I think, a fundamental change in, uh, in business. So I understand that your research actually takes that and uh, goes a step further. Um, so uh, walk us through what the goal of your research is and what are some of the, what are some of the parameters exactly. uh, for your study. So that's exactly what, I, what I'm uh, hoping to do uh, with my research, try to really understand uh, you know, I think this is a, an extraordinarily valuable set of ideas. Now, as a researcher, what I do, I try to take these ideas to the data and see what, what the data say about them. And, and of course, uh, while I really believe that, that the lean has some fundamental value, there are probably some boundary, you know, what we would call in research boundary conditions that could be situations where we're going lean, uh, is optimal and other situations where it's not and maybe in those situations if you want to go lean you have to also take some other strategies to to kind of make that work and so I wanted to try to understand those boundary conditions um, and the first step I took uh, which is what I do with this specific study uh, but this is only the first step of the first of many steps I look at uh, a very important concept that in, in the innovation uh, academic literature uh, has been discussed for, for a long time, which is the idea of appropriability. Um, and, and, you know, I, we'll talk about that uh, shortly, but I try to look at the role of appropriability in experimentation. And the way I do that, uh, I exploit for, for empirical purposes a very, very interesting change in the intellectual property environment in the U.S., which is uh, a U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, that took place in 2014 named uh, Alice Corp versus CLS Bank International. This has been a little bit of a of an important institutional change because it really, let's say, changed the way we think about patents in part of the software industry. And so in some sense is what in research, we call a quasi-natural experiment. It affected some companies doing software, but not all companies doing software. And so what it did really changed appropriability for some of the companies. And so using that, you know, studying what companies did in that context helps us understand how appropriability plays out in experimentation. Right. And, and can you just, uh, for our listeners' uh, sake, can you just explain what you mean by appropriability and also you mentioned in your paper the terms formal intellectual property and informal intellectual property. I would argue appropriability is one of the most important concepts uh, that we have in the innovation academic literature. In my view, it really comes out of, of the work uh, that uh, David Tease 
did a very well-known uh, strategy scholar from from UC Berkeley, and certainly, you know, a lot of work before and after contribute to that. Um, the idea of probability is essentially the capacity that it, that a firm has to appropriate value from its invention. So if you're an innovator, large firm, small firm, inventor, doesn't matter, when you create an innovation, the value of that could go to you or to other players in the market, depending on how the market is structured and on the strategy that you take and how other companies react. So probability is essentially how much of the value you can keep for yourself, uh, how much you can appropriate. Now, I thought that this could be an important boundary condition for experimentation. So more broadly, for, for going lean. And, and so, um, the, the, obviously, the, the basic hypothesis, you know, in the data, things are much more nuanced, but the basic hypothesis would be that when a, prob when a probability is not high, and so you're not clearly able to appropriate most of the value of your innovation because you have some, some kind of defenses in place, when you experiment, you're keeping out some of the information some information about your product at a time in which you're still, in some sense, vulnerable. And so you can get imitated, you can get replicated, and so th those uh, processes reduce the appropriate. So in some sense, the point is that experimentation, if you don't take, if you're not, uh, if you don't have a, an appropriate defensive strategy, might reduce your probability. Now, what defines how much a probability there is? And of course, a, a fundamental role is played by what we call intellectual property. Or, uh, you know, some people would even say, well, IP is what defines a probability. So, so these are really, in some sense, the same concept. And there are, you know, some recent work, uh, actually, there's some classic work, in particular work by uh, Cohen and others in the early 2000s, but also some recent I work by Hall and colleagues clearly explains how there are two important forms of intellectual property. Uh, one is what we call formal intellectual property. So the legal tools that you have to protect your intellectual properties, those are clearly um, patents, uh, trademarks, copyrights, to some extent trade secrecy. Even if somebody would say, well, trade secret is really not necessarily a formal tool, it's more of an informal tool, somewhere in between, although it is regulated by a specific law. And on the other hand, you have informal intellectual property, which are instead, uh, which is instead a set of strategic tools, a set of strategic moves that you can take to protect your innovation. The strategy literature, which I, uh, in some sense, I hope to be part of, is, is really focused on this. Uh, you know, things like having a complex product, uh, uh, lead times, and going to market early to and try to build some, some switching costs, some bars to imitation. These are important forms of uh, IIP, informal intellectual property. Now, what I tried to really understand in the paper is, okay, when formal intellectual property becomes less strong or less um, effective, then... then you might switch and try to use informal intellectual property. So this is one of the aspects of the study. So what are your main takeaways from your research? Like how can startups um, take what you've found and apply them practically to their business? Absolutely. So, so I basically collected, um, you know, hand-collected data about uh, product development processes of, of 
1,200 um, software startups. And what I did, I tried to see from online sources, tech magazines, uh, social media, and so on. And so through that, I wanted to understand when they were testing or experimenting and when they were essentially launching their products and in some sense when they actually entered the market. And so I wanted to see how these choices, so maybe how the overall strategy of these companies changed when uh, this court decision, Alice, took place. Because what the court decision did, it essentially made patenting and so formal intellectual property much harder for some companies. So what I find, uh, I find two things, broadly speaking. One is that when Alice takes place, the affected companies really change strategy. And in particular, they seem to be less likely to test their product. They do less experimentation. And the idea is that, of course, given that they can no longer use patents to protect, that experimentation becomes risky. And so, sure, you get the benefit of learning, but then the cost of doing so goes up. So it's not always... It's not necessarily uh, a, a good idea. On the other hand, what they do, they instead seem to launch their product faster. So in that sense, uh, you know, they want to go to market because so they can start getting their feedback. Adapting your product, so maybe pivoting, once you're in the market, is a little harder than, than before because what we would call adaptation costs are higher. But on the other hand, once you do that, you're essentially creating other barriers to imitation, like brand, like uh, network effects. And so, so it is safer. So this is kind of the, the first result. Companies tend to experiment less, but they go to market faster. The second result is more about performance. And there I try to look at uh, what happens to companies that, that do a lot of experimentation while they're in the new uh, post-Alice regime, and so where they cannot really protect through patents. And I do see that there is a negative correlation between doing that and performance. Companies that do that, so that experiment a lot without the, you know, the potential access to patent protection, seem to be less likely to get funding. And they also seem less likely to get acquired. And so overall, uh, this choice seems to really affect the performance. These are kind of, in some sense, the, the research findings. Let me give you a little bit of the practical implications of what I think are the practical implications of this. Well, the first implication is for startups, of course, is that, um, well, it's really important, especially in, in you know, very uncertain uh, markets, that you learn, that you get customer feedback. But when you choose that strategy, you really have to take into account uh, how you can protect your invention. And so patents is what I focus on in the study. There are other ways. And so, you know, there could be other ways. But, but again, it's really important to keep an eye on intellectual property and appropriability because that can really hurt you if you don't do that. And um, I would say that my sense by talking to entrepreneurs is that they really focus on learning less so on, on appropriability. And so that is something that, that I think the data suggests people should keep an eye on. There are also, I think, implications for, for other players in the economy. So I'll briefly talk about those. I think this matters to investors. In some sense, investors seem to be really aware of this trade-off because I see the companies that don't 
seem to worry about the probability get less funding. And so so investors probably are very aware about this. Although, again, I think I think there is really an interesting takeaway for them because if you invest in companies that, that really need a lot of learning because maybe they're building something very new, very novel, you know, maybe they're doing something that researchers would call a radical innovation, a, a disruptive innovation. Well, in that case, you might need a lot of experimentation. But also, in that case, well, you might need to protect yourself through IP effectively. And so, so this is really something that investors should keep an eye on because obviously making investment decisions on, on their own companies can, can be painful. Broadly, I want to end with, with implications for policy because that, that might matter as well. You know, policymakers obviously care a lot about innovation. Now, if, you know, in important markets or subsectors of the economy, it is really hard to protect through IP then what companies might do, well, first of all, they might do, they might be less likely to succeed because in those sectors, experimentation is really, really important. Market feedback is very, very important. And so you can really experiment properly. That might, that might be hard to do. And on the other hand, companies may even realize that actually it's hard to get into, you know, to, to, to try to build those innovative products without being able to safely experiment. So might, they might even choose to switch and, and try to, to actually compete in more, uh, traditional markets, and that would mean less innovation for the economy. So what sets your research apart from prior work in this area? Oh, so that's a nice question. I, uh, what I think, what I'm trying to do really is, is to really understand this idea of experimentation and more broadly, you know, in some sense, understanding uh, the lean methodology, which I think it's a really fundamental innovation of, of this past decade. Now, um, there are a few other researchers around the world doing research on this. I like to think that, that at least I try to, to differentiate my work in a couple of ways. One, I would say, is that, that I put together a really detailed data set uh, of uh, how companies test, when companies launch, how companies do afterwards. And this has been a lot of work, I think, and this is something that I think sets my research apart. Most other studies on this use very small data sets, uh, or mostly they, they look at case studies. And it's uh, those approaches have very important uh, advantages as well, but obviously it's hard to do statistical inference uh, without a large sample. So putting together this large sample was a big effort. I, I really want to mention I worked with an amazing team of, of uh, research assistants uh, that were... Uh, partly Wharton undergrads and partly people around the world that I hired through uh, Upwork. And they did, they helped me so much to to, build it, to put this data together. Uh, I would also mention a couple of other things that are more academic. And in some sense, uh, I think, you know, have some, some uh, value for research. One is that I don't, I haven't seen much other work trying to examine or try to use in research, this this uh, Supreme Court decision, Alice, uh, and that's been such an important event that I think research should really look at it. And I, at least in my area, uh, I think this is the first study that does that. Uh, and also, finally, there are two important streams of research in in management and strategy. One is the research on organizational learning. One is the research on probability. In some sense, they look at two sides of, of this trade-off around ex- experimentation and 
in my understanding, these literatures haven't really been combined too much. So what my work does tries to connect them. So how will you follow up this research? What's next? So the next, well, there's lots of next steps. Uh, I definitely want to keep going and understand a little more of, of what are the boundary conditions of experimentation uh, in startups primarily, but maybe also in large firms and to some extent in, in, in uh, governments and policy. So at all these levels, people innovate and maybe we can try to see how experimentation plays out if that and when that makes innovation better and more effective at any of these levels. There's a couple of things that I really want to work on soon. Um, there are at least two other boundary conditions of experimentations that, that I think we need to, to think about. One is reputation. So when you go to market very early with a with a minimum viable product, with an early stage product, with a prototype, that's super helpful because it helps you get market feedback and learn. On the other hand, if the feedback is negative, while useful because you can pivot early on, that feedback might might affect your reputation. And so those reputational concerns don't really seem to be I don't know, I, I it doesn't seem to me that that entrepreneurs, maybe even investors consider them uh, carefully and so I really want to go to the data and see how they play out. There was a really nice study by uh, Chatterjee from Duke University and Tolfa from Harvard University a few years ago that looked at how uh, rating systems affect the way companies uh, behave and, and strategize and I think rating systems is a really nice and pretty cool tool to measure reputation and so one of the things I want to do, I want to see how experimentation plays out in some sectors where rating systems are more or less strong or more or less uh, organized to try to understand the reputational concerns of experimentation. The second piece is really looking instead at um, the learning process itself. You know, experimentation makes you learn but may have these other costs like imitation or reputation. But actually, let's think about learning itself, which to some extent is the most uh, fundamental piece here. Now, there's a lot of research in strategy that, that shows that learning is uh, is hard to do, right? You can get information, but you not necessarily learn the right thing because there are uh, many types of biases which arise both at the individual level, you know, people learn in different ways, and at the collective level, at the team level. And that depends on the structure of the team, on the experience of the team, on how the team works together. So I think we need to look at, at the learning process and see how we can make that work uh, optimally to make experimentation uh, work well. So we'll leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. You can find more insights from Knowledge at Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes, and we welcome your reviews. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.